A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Is the band back together? Has Gavin Riley got an Oasis back together? You had one job, Gav. <laughs> I had one job. This is your action I, I, from the I meeting. I had one That's job and then two stomachs got in the way. Um, oh. No, the, the band is not back together because I didn't manage to make it to Nebworth. Uh, which, it wasn't because of Dublin Airport. No, it wasn't because of Dublin Airport. It was because of my, my toddler's dippy tummy because oh. uh, unfortunately uh, she had her very first encounter of a stomach bug the day before we were supposed to go. And even the night before we were supposed to fly, we were making arrangements with my parents that were going to come up early the following morning to tag team into yeah. the house so that we could go in time for the early morning flight. And then... The parental guilt just, got you. Parental guilt. Uh, and also the fact that she had been asleep and then woke up to get sick. Uh, so couldn't go. Uh, so managed to make it to Noel Gallagher's High Fine Birds in, on Sunday night, which was great. Uh, and I made my imperations to get the band back together. But... <laughs> <laughs> without without collaborations on both sides, just never going to work. If the male Gallaghers are listening, yeah, please we, bring we, them back. We pray to Saint Peggy. Or if you Gallagher, want to come on the group chat, and we'll, please, we'll do third party negotiation Peggy, here. Peggy, please just make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, you're very welcome along to the Group Chat Podcast. I'm news correspondent Zara King and I'm joined by my fellow news correspondent Richard Chambers. Hello. And political correspondent Gavin Riley. Hey, hello. Hello, guys. You've had a good week? Yeah, barring the aforementioned tummy yes. bug, which then I got, <laughs> which resulted in my, my first ever sick day. Actually, my second ever sick day ever in 12 and a half years of working full-time. Yeah, a second sick day yesterday. I haven't had an antibiotic in 12 years. I boast about it all the time. It's good. Yeah. It's good for a society that you're not using antibiotics, that, you know, that we're, we're not building up fancy uh, probably microbial good for climate, resistance. I didn't take a short-hop flight yeah. to England at the weekend as well, which I know we'll get to in a couple of minutes' time. But um, yeah, sure, let's, let's all look at the positives from not being sick or being sick. <laughs> Richard, we're going to start with you. You've been working on this story today about petrol prices. I suppose retailers calling on the government to urgently revisit that tax uh, on fuel. Mm. You've been on the forecourts. I've been out, yeah. I've been out and about uh, trying to chat to people on Not garage happy. forecourts. Nobody's happy. No. Uh, retailers aren't happy. Um, lots of, I mean, I, don't, I can't imagine anybody who's trying to fill a car and run a car for a family or run a business which depends on cars or lorries or trucks is happy at the moment. So we're well past that €2 Euro per litre um, mark now, probably soaring towards €2.30 per litre at this yeah. point and possibly beyond. Tell you who's uh, happy. Pascal Donoghue, with all the taxis taken in as a result. I'd say, I'd say he wouldn't admit to being happy about these <laughs> sort of things. I think that'd be politically uh, devastating. But effectively, we're at a point now, I was chatting to a number of different people um, today uh, out in the Dublin Meads border, actually, um, just basically chatting to commuters and people filling up their cars in the middle of the day about how it's affecting them. People were talking about how they're having to skip family visits at weekends, um, how it's making it more difficult to run their business, all these sort of things. It's hitting everybody and not just because of specifically the price of fuel. But if you're paying out more and more and more uh, to fill a car, well, then you have less money to do everything else. So yeah. something else takes a hit along the way. So here's just a, f- a few examples of what uh, people were saying to us a little bit earlier on. I mean, you have to you have to put fuel in the tank to go to either pick kids up from school or keep the truck on the road and keep the business ticking. Like you have no choice, you know. I work every single day, so it's ridiculous. I'd be here and there, like we're hoped and done a more and stuff like that for work. I, I I build and stuff like that, so it's ridiculous. Wicked. Yeah. Terrible. Look here. Two hundred twelve cent per liter. Yeah. The last time it was just over two hundred, and that was bad enough. 
Mm. So I think it's really clear from what we're hearing from people there is they literally cannot afford any more expense in terms of, of fuel. I know some people that I spoke to during the week um, talking about the cost of living were saying that their first thing to go really was kind of the Sunday spin, you know, taking yeah. the kids out for the Sunday spin. They would have gone maybe to the seaside, which would have been maybe 30, 40 minute drive for them. That was something they would have done every Sunday, particularly, you know, in the summertime where even one girl said to me, actually, she used to visit her 89-year-old grandmother four times a week. And she's like, I'm going to see granny once a week now because I just can't afford to actually visit her. So that lady is now not getting the amount of visits from her loved one that she would have normally gotten. Like, I know that sounds really tedious, but that's kind of the lived reality of what people are going through now in terms of that pinch. And, and the thing is that pretty much everyone accepts that it's not just going to level off at 215 or 220, that it's going to get higher. Because I know our, our mm. economics correspondent, Paul Cogger, was doing some work today about uh, how much more the, the, the price of a, a barrel of crude oil is going to go and what that's probably likely to translate into the pump. And it was put to some ministers in the Dáil last week that it could get to like 250 by the middle of the su- by later in the summer. And there wasn't any pushback or any kind of dissent being like, no, you're talking crazy. It was sort of accepted as being a natural consequence. And it's partly a consequence of what we're talking about last week. Then you move to uh, boycott most Russian oil, which even though Ireland doesn't use much of it, the rest of the world does. So oil just now becomes proportionately that bit more scarce. So there's mm. nothing else you can do. Uh, but also because you know, oil is where we've gone past peak oil, where we are slowly globally we are running out of oil. So it's, it's only ever going to go one way. There isn't going to be some magical tipping point in a couple of months, even if the war in Ukraine were to end satisfactorily, where people will just go, oh, it's grand now, back to the prices we were. Like This is probably going to be the new normal. So the world's mm. going to have to do some pretty drastic stuff to uh, And did to anyone speak to you today about, like, I suppose, the idea of, you know, moving to electric yeah. conversation? Interestingly enough, yeah, I was chatting to one uh, petrol station owner uh, and he was basically saying, well, look, we, we, we have that facility here. We don't have enough cars on the road which are doing that. But that is People interesting. People don't pay to charge, do they, at petrol stations? Or how does that work? Um, generally not. Generally not for most... T- from the way it is for, for most setups there, it isn't. But obviously that's going to... That'll probably like change. Or they've they've actually, be- yeah, they're going to phase out the free public yeah. charges at, like, at the side of the streets or whatever because they actually right. need to incentivise petrol pump owners to install one and for people to use them so they're actually getting rid of the free ones. But what is interesting is that there has clearly been over the first five months of the year definitely a shift in terms of what new cars people are buying, there's been basically a doubling of the new um, of, of, of electric vehicles or plug-in hybrids which have been bought. Well, at the same time, the amount of uh, used cars being bought has plummeted, as well as that, the number of new diesel cars also come down. So effectively, you are seeing, to some degree, a slow creep now towards the electric to plug-in hybrids because people, whether that's because they want to be environmentally conscious or because of the fact that fossil fuels are now completely, you know, effectively extortionate mm-hmm. in terms of the price that people are asked to pay for them now. And, and you know, if even if you're trying to, you know, heat a house at this point, you'll know all about the cost of these things. So mm-hmm. there's definitely a shift going on, on at the moment. There will be further incentives, all that sort of stuff to try and get more people onto it. But it is going to be, one, you know, one of the key environmental questions which we're going to be asking ourselves for quite some time to come. It kind of brings on nicely to our guest, actually, who's joined the group chat this week. We've been speaking to uh, Dr. Cara Augustenberg, who is uh, joining us now from Trinity College. Good evening, Cara. Hi, how are you? How are you? Thank you so much for joining the podcast with us this week. Uh, Cara, we're going to begin with, I suppose, the EPA report last week, pointing to the fact that there needs to be urgent implementation in terms of the climate plans and policies. In terms of Ireland's target uh, to reduce the emissions by 51% by 2030, how are we doing with that? Well, what the EPA report that came out last week said was that even if we implement all of the plans in the last Climate Action Plan, which was published in 2019, we will only reduce emissions by about 28% between now and 2030. And while that's enough to meet our EU obligations, unfortunately, we've 
We've actually raised the bar since then. The new government has put in a target of 51% by 2030. So we are not going to meet that target based on the current action plan, which means we need to create a new action plan. So is that to say, um, Cara, that we've gone to the likes of COP26, we've signed up to all these global treaties where we're going to agree to try and slash our emissions by half, and we've legislated for carbon budgets and all that other sort of stuff, but we haven't actually produced any plan on how we're actually going to reduce our emissions? Well, part of the plan, part of the problem with that is the timing. So we had a new government. They created a, a, a new climate action plan relatively soon after they came into government. And then the new legislation was passed. So we always knew this was going to be an issue. And they have always committed to doing another climate action plan that's in line with the new legislation. So that means that we should see a new climate action plan uh, around about September or November of this year. And we would hope that that actually that plan has to come up with enough plans and policies that we actually do hit that 51% target. So it's it's more of a timing issue than an issue of failure at this stage. Cara, can I ask why in Ireland we seem to constantly, every single year, maybe twice or three times a year, we hear how we are lagging far behind what our climate targets are and that we are going to be in line for serious fines as the financial or, financial or the economic cost of this. But obviously the detriment of our planet is the ultimate problem here. Why are we consistently falling behind what we should be doing? Like what sectors in Ireland or what industries or what elements of Irish society and business have really sort of led us down in this? Well, part of the reason is that, of course, the longer we take to, to not do anything and to kick the can down the road, the, the more we have to do later on to, to meet those targets. So it gets harder and harder the more we delay. Uh, at the moment now, we're at the process where each of the sectors are, are setting their sectoral emissions targets, is what they say. So what they're going to do to stay within these new carbon budgets. So they're going to divide up the pie, essentially, between these sectors and Obviously, energy, electricity has been leading the way and that we have a lot of wind turbines now. They've been doing pretty well and they have a vision to completely decarbonize by around 2036. So that's very positive. Uh, transport, not so much. And of course, as the economy grows and we come out of COVID, we're seeing the emissions from transport going way up again. So we really need that kind of sustainable and active transport to, to come into play. And that's going to take time when, when we build these cycle lanes and we start creating more public transport. It takes time to start seeing the emissions going down from that. And, and, and the big question mark now is with agriculture, because there's just been a blind spot, essentially, to their obligation to reduce emissions for a really long time. And a lot of energy has been wasted by the agricultural sector in saying that they shouldn't necessarily have to do anything or have to do as much uh, to meet those targets. So they're not being asked to do as much. They're being asked to do somewhere between 22 and 30 percent emissions reductions compared to about 50 percent from the other sectors. But they're still saying even that's too much for them. So that's going to be the big question mark going forward. Just one thing that I sort of feel watching the political debate around climate change in this country is, you know, how much we long finger things, how much we put things back, how often we're, we seem to be revel as a government and as a society and we can call it out as a problem. So Ireland, I think, was the second country in the world to declare a climate emergency. And yet we still don't meet our targets. We're good on climate talk. But climate action yeah. is a different thing entirely. I mean, do you feel that the likelihood is that we're still going to be debating things like the carbon tax, like farm emissions, like, you know, transport and energy production at a time when, you know, things have already changed too far? I mean, we're talking about the 1.5 degrees 
uh, increase in global temperatures and how detrimental that will be for all of us. Like, what are we seeing around the world as we speak that should be setting off alarm bells to us that we have probably let things go too far already? I think what we're seeing in Ireland is that the current government is uh, is far more progressive on climate action than we've seen in any government. So we have a lot more ambitious plans and policies being committed to, but the, the question is around implementation. So are those going to be implemented fast enough to get the emissions down? I mean, we're seeing commitments from the current minister, Eamon Ryan, that, that things will start happening in the next two years, that they're really accelerating things in the same way that the government accelerated uh, action around COVID. Uh, so hopefully that will happen and that will be really positive. But I think every country around the world is struggling with some of the Biden administration in the U.S. is saying that uh, they're really worried about meeting their energy targets, that the whole solar industry has completely collapsed in America because of trade issues with China. So it's not easy for any country to, to make this big transfer transformation away from fossil fuels. And I think Ireland, uh, it's probably harder for us because we've left it so late. And Carrie, in terms of engagement in all of this, of, of course, we're seeing huge uh, action, particularly from younger people, and it's really refreshing to see that. But there's always going to be people who sort of aren't engaged in this who'll say, oh, it's kind of not really my problem or I'm not that interested in it. Was it fair to say that if you're not panicking at this point, then you clearly don't understand the problem? Yeah, but I think it's human nature to to not panic and to try and, you know, to go, oh, my God, that's shocking, and then forget about it later. We see that with all sorts of problems. We see it in America with, with gun control legislation, and every time there's a shooting, that's the only thing on the airwaves, and then people very quickly forget, and maybe maybe that's part of, of being human, and it's, it's hard to get your head around these big, big global challenges. Uh, but certainly the news is shocking and terrifying, and if you read it every day like I do, then, then you're very aware that our future is very precarious, and the future of our children is very precarious, and life is going to get much harder uh, very quickly if we don't take action soon and, and try and halt or limit global warming. Um, what do you say, Cara, to the argument that some other, um, I don't want to say climate sceptics, but people who are a bit sort of ne negative or sceptical about the necessity for countries like Ireland to do anything, they'll always put the argument that, you know, major corporations are responsible for so many emissions or larger industrial countries like the USA or China are responsible for so much that in the grand scheme of things, if Ireland were not to meet its obligations, it would only be a drop in the ocean, that it's those bigger countries that really carry this way and that therefore Ireland really shouldn't be forcing citizens to make uncomfortable choices about their lives just to save the planet when they're not going to be the ones that make the difference. Yeah, it's the number one question that gets asked in the media, actually. And uh, the truth is, if every country took that attitude that we're only small and what we do doesn't matter, um, a quarter of emissions are represented by countries like Ireland that are less than 2% of emissions globally. So all the small countries also have to do their part in order to solve climate change. A quarter of emissions is as big as the United States. So we all need to chip in to do it. And as to the question about whether you know it's corporations, of course, you can say it's corporations that are committed... Uh, that are contributing to emissions, but they're contributing because we, as individuals, choose to buy their products. So we drive uh, th those emissions from corporations and, and we drive those emissions from China in particular because we buy a lot of our products from China. So the carbon footprint of a country or of people in China individually is much smaller than people in Western Europe and in the United States. Uh, but it's the fact that they manufacture all these goods for people like us that drives their emissions upwards. Cara, for people who are looking for real-world or real-life examples about what might happen here, 
um, within the next couple of decades as a result of climate change. Is there anything you could point to around the world as an example of the sort of climate changing in a, in a very obvious and detrimental way that we could expect to happen here without the sort of action that we need to take and which we obviously haven't taken so far? Yeah, I think for Ireland, there's a few things. So sea level rise is, is going to be a big problem globally. But what researchers are finding in the New University is that sea level rise is happening in places like Dublin uh, much faster than they predicted and, and to a much greater extent than other parts of the world. So uh, that's a big concern for, for people who live near the coast, which is a majority of our, our population. And it's also a big concern for our infrastructure. So if you think about our dart line, for example, it is right on the ocean and it's at huge risk of, of falling into the sea because of climate change. And then I think the other big risk for us is on food production because a majority of our food is actually imported from other countries. So when they struggle with a changing climate, as we're seeing in places like India right now, uh, that affects the ability for them to be able to export food to us. So particularly when it comes to grain right now, the Ukraine isn't able to produce grain because of their conflict. And India said they would step in and be able to fill that gap. But now India is experiencing an incredible drought, drought across the country. So I think we're going to start to see food prices go up and, and that's going to affect us here in Ireland. And food availability eventually will affect us too. So that is the, the big concern, I think, for, for us here in Ireland. That is the reality of it. Dr. Cara Gustenberg, thank you so much for joining the group chat. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Dr. Cara Gustenberg there. And I think, interesting as she's sort of finishing off on, the real world impacts of this are now so stark. We talked about the food crisis mm. based on, you know, the amount of grain that cannot now leave Ukraine. Mm. Um, the breadbasket of the world. Effectively. Everybody was like, oh, India will help with that. India has had unprecedented heat waves. The yield of corn maize that's mm. going to be coming out of there is so drastically down. There's some places in India and Pakistan in the last couple of weeks that have had temperatures above 60 degrees yeah. Celsius. Yeah. People are going to starve in their thousands as a result of climate change. And that is something which I don't think we draw the line between yeah. often enough, I think. It'll actually be funny to see whether there is a kind of a tipping point in consciousness uh, later this summer, because I remember talking a couple of weeks ago to the CEO of Oxfam Ireland, who was pointing out that they've got a new study where uh, with a combination of COVID and the way that it's still ravaging through some parts of Africa, which don't have the same equitable access to vaccines, so they're, they're getting it far worse. Um, between droughts that they have now where crops continually fail year on year on year, and Ukraine and India both falling through as their, their fallback options. Somalia, for example, is a population of around 16 million people. Mm. And Oxfam's estimate is that this summer, this summer alone, one, one summer, 350,000 children, children alone, will die of starvation because of the failure of their own food and the failure of other countries to come up with it. So much of which, obviously a bit of it is down to, to Russia and Ukraine, but a lot of it is down to crops just not growing because it's too hot anymore. Yeah. And if that's going to become the new normal, then we have some serious reckonings on our own. It's really shocking. What other things do you think in your own life that you're starting to become a bit more aware of, a bit more conscious? I think it's funny, like, do you know what's recently I've, I've noticed probably more than ever, I think this move towards moving away from fast fashion is really interesting in a sense that like, you know, there was a time where people bought something, wore it once and, you know, never wore it again. Cheap fashion, cheap clothing. I think mm. now there's definitely... I feel more conscious now about wearing what I own already. And I don't know, is that is that 
it's just something that's crept in over the last year where I feel way more um, even I was going to a friend's wedding to Nicole Gurren and her colleague's wedding and I wore a skirt that I've owned for 15 years and I thought oh, that's a lovely skirt but like why not wear that skirt that yeah. I've had for 15 years to a wedding otherwise you would have been buying something new you're, you know, you're contributing to that vicious mm. cycle all the Do you time remember that, that used to be more acceptable though until uh, Bebo happened and then yeah. there would be photographs of you at a do or at like your cousin's wedding or on a night out and then if like the photo album went up of you on another night out mm. or another event a month later and you're wearing the but same But I love stuff, that that's, that's changed when, now. That's when it became a faux pas but like it, it's yeah. actually it was a dreadful modern phenomenon that it suddenly became a thing where you couldn't wear something yeah. more than once or twice. I yeah. think the, the, the you know the, the tide is really turning on that. You see that even really? on Love Island. Yeah. Love Island this year, all the contestants are, have, are, are the clothes are from eBay, yeah. Yeah. effectively. Yeah. Um, even the, the sort of the rise of the vintage shop. Yeah. Everything is sort of, you know... Pre-loved. Pre-loved. Pre-loved, yeah. Um, you get cooler stuff as well, no, effectively. Honestly, I do think well, some of the stuff is much nicer. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think as well, like delving into what you own already, like I know this sounds a bit preachy, but like I felt even like going through, I've, you know, I moved house recently and going through boxes and boxes of stuff and thinking all this stuff that we've had for so long, mm. you can almost go shopping in your own wardrobe or delve into, you know, even for example, there's makeup that I found in a drawer at home last weekend that is perfect makeup. It's sealed and unopened that I probably bought ages ago with great intentions and never used, which is an awful waste. And thought I'm going to repurpose that and start using it again. And I think these are small things that are, I know they're not going to change the world, but like they're definitely so, small, subtle things. That I think all of us are starting to but perhaps if, if see every in our Western own lives. Consumer did yeah. exactly that. It would make a big difference. I totally agree. Yeah. I think just when you see some of the kind of the websites that are selling clothes for very, very cheap, like I mean, there's you know places selling dresses for under ten euro, and you um, think, what are the consequences of that? Well, you actually, know, there was a fascinating piece as well, not to get too far off the topic, but there was a really good piece this week in the Irish Times by Sally Hayden, who was actually a college contemporary of myself and Richards. Uh, she was involved in the University Observer at the same time as we were. Um, she's now like basically an Africa correspondent for the Irish Times, and she had a really good piece about how um, a lot of African markets are selling what used to be cast-offs or donations mm -hmm. from. The, the North and the Western Hemisphere. And now, because of fast fashion, so much of charity donations that end up in African markets are just like disposable two euro tops that no one ever wants to wear mm. again. And how even their own economies that they find themselves then, firstly, the economic thing of not being able to sell them on because it's a diswanted garment that nobody wants. Mm. Um, but then secondly, there's an environmental impact with the West's clothes just piling up in Africa because they were donated to Africa and no one wants them there either. And they're just piling up. And the, the better we can do to be more economical with what we've got. It's, I think it's so refreshing. I work a lot with young social innovators. You know, I do kind of their annual awards with them every year. And I think that the teenagers now are so much better than we were as teenagers in a sense that they're just so... I don't know. I just I'm so impressed by how teenagers now are so conscious of that, and like there's no pressure mm. within that cohort now to be wearing something once and never wearing it again. I think that they're so much yeah. more conscientious about it, and it's so refreshing to see that. And I think it takes the pressure off as well from all perspectives to be you know accepted because you've this brand new thing. Actually, kind of showing your creativity and having the ability to go into your wardrobe and style something based on what you already own seems to be far more trendy or far more kind of popular now. What's the oldest piece of clothes that you own? That you'd, that you'd still might actually that I'd still wear. wear. I'd say that skirt. <laughs> well, I yeah, like I'm trying to think. I definitely the skirt. I got that skirt when I was 15 in Monsoon, and I, it's beautiful. And I I wore it. I wore it on the work night out last week with a crap okay. T-shirt. Yeah. I have a fleece I got from my confirmation that you I still wear it. It was very oversized, but I still wear it. I was just going to say you're still getting absolutely absolutely unbelievable. That size that's, that's <laughs> unbelievable. Not a, not a mark yeah. kind of thing. Absolute beige of a, of a fleece. What about you? Probably the the white away shirt for uh, Ireland's World Cup 2002 campaign. 
Of but that's kind of vintage, isn't it? Like, I guess those yeah. jerseys and stuff are that quite... Like, I've yeah. Carchester yeah. Valley jerseys wearing says. the same time yeah. that I'd probably still wear the other time. I actually was thinking, I still have my Deb's dress in a wardrobe at home at my parents' house and I considered repurposing it for a wedding and then I thought maybe not. That probably wouldn't fit me at this point, but... Yeah, I just think generally, like that's that that that's one element. Absolutely, the yeah. the the clothes and, and upcycling, recycling, or whatever you want to do. There's a lot there's of that bigger issues. There's of course, a lot of yeah. lifestyle changes which is go- are going to be asked of all of us over the next yeah. couple of years. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So new research uh, by the Health Research Board has shown a 170% increase in young people being treated for cocaine use. This was over a nine-year period. Were you surprised by that? 170%. Like, I, I, I suspect that it was widespread, but I didn't think that it would have basically have trebled in the space mm. for about nine years. Like, I'm a little bit surprised by the gravity of that. But then again, I, I actually don't know why I'm surprised, given the amount of anecdotal stories that we've all heard and that other people have heard about how commonplace the likes of cocaine is now. Yeah. Yeah, just when you see the prevalence of it. And I think there has been a societal change, really, mm. towards almost a social acceptance that it's really, especially over the last number of years, maybe Maybe three or four years. It's just the other side of the pandemic, I would say, where it really has become, it's like every pub, every restaurant, every club, just every town has probably got uh, a, a fairly large, you know, volume of cocaine, you know, just casually being used mm. by people in the town. And that's across multiple different age groups. I think that what's, what's interesting about the, um, about the study from, from, um, from today was effectively the age Issue on this mm. is something which actually is something which does shock me. Probably well, these are fifteen to twenty-four olds. That's the age profile yeah. involved in this research. But it's, it's, so then, does that speak to a bigger cultural shift where, uh, once upon a time, teenagers sort of you know that their 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 grand illicit adventure mm. was having a few cans before you were legally allowed to go buy them? Has that now just translated into that being so commonplace that now teenagers will routinely have cocaine? before they're even a drinking age? Well, what I would say, before we move on to answer that question, what I would say is actually Julie O'Toole, who I met today, is a remarkable individual. So Julie um, uh, 
first took drugs when she was 14. Uh, she was a drug addict from the age of 14 to 22. So that would have been in the late 80s, right up to 1996. She she took her last drug in 1996. Uh, Julie wrote a book about her drug addiction. Uh, it's called Heroin, A True Story of Addiction, Hope and Triumph. And I was talking to her today about this research and I was saying to her, you know, are you surprised that she was not a bit surprised whatsoever? But just the point that you make, I suppose, obviously she was involved in drug addiction from a really young age back in the late 80s, early 90s. So I don't know, has it really, I mean, maybe the type of drugs that are available now have changed possibly but Julie was saying today that you know she sees cocaine everywhere she sees you know ecstasy cocaine and ecstasy Ireland has the second highest consumption of cocaine and ecstasy in young people in Europe and you know Julie said today that really this comes as no surprise it was you know surrounding everyone she said she knows children as young as primary school age who have um, been offered cocaine and are taking cocaine which I was really surprised here we can take a listen to what she had to say this afternoon well I know for a fact a 12 year old was taking cocaine and smoking grass. And, you know, that's very fair. Well, I started at 13, 14, but that's extremely young, still in primary school. If you look at cocaine, cocaine was called the rich man's drug at one stage, but now it has no barriers. It has no, it doesn't respect any man, any woman. So I suppose, look, Julia speaking there about uh, cocaine, formerly known as a rich man's drug, now widely available. She also said, which I thought was really interesting, is that um, she would regularly drug test her own kids. She's kids kind of early teens, mid-teens. Um, now, that's obviously coming from a place of her own sort of awareness. She does it not because her children, she doesn't believe they're not, but she's, mm. she says she wants to do it as a precautionary measure still, in her own household. She's living in the same community yeah, that she grew up in. Yeah, same community, yeah. You can sort of understand then, even though it might seem maybe overzealous to some people, you can understand that she's desperate to make sure that her children don't end up falling down the same traps that she did. Definitely, yeah. Mm. But it's not just her, though. I spoke to a, an addiction counsellor in South Dublin who said that he's aware of a lot of families who are regularly drug testing their kids at home as well, which I was really surprised to hear that. Yeah, and like without being a parent, I don't want to step across and sort of commentate on other people yeah. think is best for their families and, and all that sort of stuff. I, that is interesting. That is surprising. I think I've never know, heard of that. If I'm totally no, honest, I haven't. I've never I haven't heard actually. of that. And you know what? Actually, it's just so interesting. Just as, as I think about it, and we're talking about the age profile of people using cocaine. It's so interesting. And um, if you're ever on TikTok, mm. just how you know rampant and open kids of young age are about taking really? cocaine. Really? Like, yeah. On TikTok, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll just come across it and it's when people are describing nights out and stuff like that or like there'll be popular memes based around, you know, going off to the bathroom effectively oh. with, with, you know, a bag of cocaine. Like this is something wow. which is really, really socially acceptable now at a younger age. And like, as we're sort of saying, it has morphed from being something which was exclusive mm. or seen as exclusive before to something which is, you know, absolutely the norm. It's, it's kind of funny how these things can then be normalised because I, I knew that um, they often use the likes of Snapchat because of just the disappearing messages that people would go incognito and that there would be basically dealers on Snapchat who would always be able to sort you out with the supply because then the, the messages would disappear and there'd be no proof of anything. Um, but the, the idea that it's so normalised and so regularised in their society that they would openly even joke in a sort of a casual, like, memeified way about going to the toilet. Like, it only just speaks to how how these things can culturally change over time. Like I was talking to, to older family members at the weekend and we were talking about how once upon a time there was a culture of like accepting a moderate amount of drink driving. I'm not saying driving while drunk, mm -hmm. but that once upon a time there was, there was a generation, like our parents' generations, would have thought it was acceptable to like have one or two and still get behind the wheel. Mm. And I feel Literally like we, in we, rural spots where maybe taxis and yeah, things weren't and available. And I feel like we probably grew up of an era where you, you just didn't. Yeah, it just was that. the done thing. You, you don't have one and drive. You have none if you're driving. That's what they've done. 
And yet so quickly then you've moved to a culture where teenagers just think that openly talking about the use of illegal drugs is so common that you, you wonder then, is there a drug driving habit breaking in that we don't know about? I'm, I'm just kind of mm. aghast that not only is it so commonplace, but that they're so open about it. Yeah. But then again, I don't know why I'm so shocked about that because we see so many pieces about how it's so common in sports club rooms. Like there was a piece in the Sunday Independent a few weeks ago about how it's really commonplace in schools' rugby culture. And there was a piece in the Indo a few years back about how it's common in rural GA clubhouses because uh, young lads love it because it gives them a good buzz for the night. It's not much dearer than drink and there's no hangover. Mm. So they feel like it, it's an ideal night out and why would you be paying for drink when minimum unit pricing is as it is now and drink is so prohibitive? that for them it just seems like the, the natural progression to spend your night doing. Well, I suppose, look, you know, you've covered the Guinea and Cartel, I suppose the big clampdown on them in recent weeks. I mean, that's, you know, the money's coming from somewhere. Like something is fueling that, you know what I mean? It's not, those businesses are booming for a reason in a lot of ways, you know? Yeah, it was interesting as well. I was reading uh, in the Irish Times um, on Wednesday, uh, Kitty Holland's article about just sort of, you know, delving into real world experiences of this. Mm. And I was interested to see, to, to read about, you know, how young people were still, taking cocaine even though pubs and clubs were closed. That yes, basically you're actually, still out in that. parks yeah. and stuff like that. And I was like, that was that is interesting. Like, I mean, I can understand, I suppose, there's, that there is um, if, if people in that demographic who are inclined to take drugs would be like, well, I'm just going to do it anyway. Like people were still drinking and stuff anyway. So less a party drug and more a pastime drug. Yeah, I, I just found it interesting. I suppose it is something which I suppose, um, it's, it's one of these things that everybody knows about, but doesn't perhaps talk about as much, mm. I think. I've never been offered a drug, actually. I, like, I honestly, I said this to you earlier and you were kind of laughing at me, but I was like, no one's ever... I wasn't after Do this. I just have a face where someone wouldn't offer me a drug or something? Uh, like, I don't I know. all that aghast, because I've, I've, I was offered uh, a drag of a joint on a night link once, literally once. Do you think that, people that was, they think we're total squares and they wouldn't offer us? Well, I, I think I will, I've something. always given off the ambience of a square. I don't think it's ever <laughs> I think, yeah, me too. The fact that we're all sitting here is absolute proof that we are massive, massive squares. squares, I know. <laughs> Rich, you, well, you, you were saying earlier on that like, you have a bit of an issue with um, the, the way in which there are some places that are unfairly pastiche as being homes of drug culture. Yeah, it's interesting. And I don't want to like criticise anybody's work because this is obviously work and that's what they were, their, their sources were giving them. But like there was a talk about League of Ireland grounds um, in one publication online um, being, you know, the focus of guard inquiries about cocaine use. Mm. And I just found that interesting because League of Ireland grounds is such a niche thing in mm. the grand scheme of cocaine like there, use there in this country. There are nine used every weekend. Yeah, like I, I, I mean, we could, we could look a lot closer to home for places, you know what I mean? If, it's, if, it, if it is such a common thing amongst young people mm. in pubs, clubs, nightclubs, Anywhere yeah. in the country, oh, it's, just, it's very houses. interesting yeah. that there's a, that there's a, like that we're looking into a particular demographic of people who are just sports fans or whatever. Um, like I have seen people openly use cocaine uh, in sports grounds. I've seen them in pubs and stuff and bathrooms and all that sort of stuff as well. That happens. Um, it shouldn't be a surprise to any of us. And I think that when you almost try and pigeonhole or you try and focus too much on, well, here's one place that they do it. You're kind of closing yourself off to the broader societal problem, mm -hmm. I think. Dr. Garrett McGovern, who I interviewed today, was saying um, he runs an addiction service in South Dublin. He was saying, I suppose, the key thing really about cocaine in terms of the risk is that obviously it's an unregulated product, so you don't know what you're taking. And that's kind of one of the key risks he thinks that people take. He said he's been aware of people who've, you know, died from whatever you want to call it, a bad batch, and that he thinks that, you know, across the board, that's kind of the risk, I guess, you mm. take in something like that. It's not mm. as if somebody's going to say, oh yeah, you know, this this batch has been cleared and is, and is safe. You know what I mean? There's no yeah. way of knowing, yeah, I no suppose, what you're consuming yeah. in that setting and that's yeah. one of the highest risk elements to it. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so it's something we'll definitely come back to again, I think. It's an interesting talking point. And actually, it might be nice to hear from some of our listeners on this one, actually, about... Yeah, if, I if think experiences would be interesting. Experiences We can guarantee anonymity, so if anyone wants yeah. to get in touch and tell us about their experiences of taking drugs and how they started taking them and why they do it. Yeah, I think school us a little bit and let us know kind of what the reality is uh, where you're from. Prove that you're less square than we are. Yeah, absolutely. So contact any of us on social media about that. And like I say, we can guarantee anonymity. We might come back to it next week, a couple yeah. of the, the real life yeah. anecdotes. Um, just want to rattle through a couple of other things that have happened this week. Um, if you haven't seen this, I would highly recommend taking a look at Matthew McConaughey uh, speaking yeah. at the yeah. White House. Uh, Richard, you texted this to me last night. He was very upset. Yeah, this is a guy who is uh, from Uvalde in Texas, where, of course, that horrific school shooting was. A really emotional response from Matthew McConaughey here. My day wore green high-top converse with a heart she had hand-drawn on the right toe because they represented her love of nature. Camilla's got these shoes. Can you show these shoes, please? Wore these every day. Green converse with a heart on the right toe. These are the same green converse on her feet that turned out to be the only clear evidence that could identify her after the shooting. How about that? Mm. Again, you, you know what every one of these parents wanted, what they asked us for? What every parent separately expressed in their own way to Camilla and me? That they want their children's dreams to live on. That they want their children's dreams to continue to accomplish something after they are gone. They want to make their loss of life matter. It's such a universal thing, isn't it, to imagine uh, like a child wearing Converse that they love and for it like mm -hmm. to be such a common thing. Like it, it's one of the things actually that I think makes the story slightly more approachable from a worldwide perspective because, you know, we've talked before about America's weird mm -hmm. fascination with guns and how it's so critical to their culture which in some ways makes the story kind of, it others it in some ways. It's not a thing that happens here. But like kids with a favourite pair of shoes with a little heart drawn on because they like the natural world. That's mm -hmm. such a universal thing. And it really just brings the whole thing home in ways that it, it might not otherwise. Yeah. Uvalde has been, you know, one of those things that's not going away. And I think the pressure for change is heavier now than it's ever been. Um, yeah, but... Again, like, like we've discussed, the Democrats the have a majority it. in the House. They have the White House. They have tie-breaking votes in the mm -hmm. Senate. What are they going to do mm -hmm. with it? They're that? going to turn it into an electoral issue. So elect us in November and we can do all that stuff. But it's also and a mandate now. Do it now. Yeah, it, it's interesting, Zara. If, if you're saying that the pressure is higher than it's ever been, the resistance is probably yeah. as high as it's ever been too. For, every, for, for all these motions, there's always going to be that backlash. Mm. I saw one Republican senator there today talk, trying to compare it to post 9-11 saying, well, we didn't ban planes after 9-11, which is, I mean, kind of negates the fact that it mm. became incredibly difficult to get on planes post 9-11 as yeah, well. But yeah, it's, so this is going to be something that's going to just still putting your holiday keep on going. Well, you have to do a background check to find Boeing 737 though. So, you know, there were some changes. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, Boris Johnson is still hanging in there. Still hanging in there. Survives uh, that vote. Uh, British Prime Minister is just hanging on. Improbably. The interview just, he gave after he survived the vote. Can we take a second? Where, where like, he was I like, can't believe that he just kept repeating. Got to get on with the business of the day. Yeah. Like he just, now he looked, result. He looked quiet. Didn't he look quite like he looked a bit rattled? I have to say. It's the first think time you I've would, seen him. Wouldn't you? But he got booed going into the Platinum Jubilee Why into we, St Paul's Cathedral on Saturday. It was probably an interesting tipping point because, yeah. like, if you have a lot of um, like last week was basically a non-political week in Britain because it was. Platty Jubes week. Jubes, Jubes? Platty Jubes. Platty Jubes. It's one of those words I've only seen Jubes. written down. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was Platty Jubes week, so there was no politics. It was like a four-day weekend, so politics wasn't happening. 
And then when people are at home watching the BBC's coverage and they see the Prime Minister being booed by like royalists, by people who... Conservative would, voters. Conservative voters. People who spend voters. the night camped outside a cathedral because they want to get a, like a 10 yeah. second glimpse of a royal. They're people who are they're they're into conservative institutions yeah. by their nature. Yeah. Are booing a conservative Prime Minister. You know you've lost the room. Um, I think his wife's face gave it away for a second. I think she was slightly surprised with the booing. She sort of glanced back and there was yeah. a moment of like, oh, I think this is a bit odd. I thought it was very telling actually when he did the interview on Monday night after he survived. And he almost kind of reverted to type where he, you know, one of the things he said, but the things he kept repeating was, we're going we're gonna to get it done. Uh, yeah. Get, get what done? I know. Because like Brexit is done. So what, what are you going to get done? It. Are you going to do it? Yeah. Hashtag get it done. He kept saying cost of living, oh, the British public yeah. don't care about the cost of living, we're going to get on but, with things. But what is fascinating is that we we all portrayed, or we we in the political media, um, we we compared it to other Tory votes of confidence that there's been in, uh, you know, Thatcher or in Theresa May. And we've said, oh, you know, he has more people against him than any of them ever did. And therefore the assumption being that there was some irresistible force would come <clears> along to just nudge him out. And we're recording this 48 hours later. Nothing's happened. I don't yeah, think anybody. I don't think anybody thought though that it would happen if he survives the vote that he'd be gone in a couple of days. There is a feeling that it'll happen. Like there, it's it's a slow death thing that he's a wounded like animal. Within six months, you reckon more yeah. so? Yeah, you have yeah. you have people who know the Tory Party inside out, and they're like, "Well, we're going to." There's currently a rule that there can't be another vote of no confidence yes. in him yeah. within 12 months there's a feeling now that you could change the rules the rebels are going to change the rules he did try to remove the, the head of the 1922 committee didn't he so that couldn't <laughs> stop I mean he is <laughs> absolutely um, he's, a, he's a survivor though he is so is. canny at these situations and um, the self-belief is admirable almost things that would scupper any other politician or any other prime minister uh, seem to just bounce off him to a certain degree it will be interesting. It is interesting, though, that there is a sense of inevitability that yeah. is still there. While it hasn't happened yet, there is a feeling that it might just be a couple well, of months And may, maybe the vulnerability is, maybe it's the next time that he tries to do anything. And one of the things that he might try to do is this this much briefed attempt to try and undermine certain parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol, the unique trading arrangement for the North post-Brexit, uh, make some changes to domestic law so that some of the nasty stuff that they don't like simply goes away. <clears throat> uh, and there's a sense that he's going to try and appease the most hardline people in the backbenches of the Tory party. I reckon that they're the people whose votes he's already got. Uh, and I think that the interesting thing is that that, that bill was promised on Tuesday and then on Wednesday and then on Thursday. Now the talk is it's not going to be until next Monday. I suspect number 10 won't publish that bill until they know for certain that he's got the votes to pass it because he doesn't want to do what Theresa May did, continually publishing Brexit-related stuff, knowing that he doesn't have the votes to pass it. And anytime he tries to do anything now, will be an interesting time as to whether there's a tipping point. Yeah, and just I suppose speaking, speaking of the Platinum Jubilee, just in relation to a lot of people would have wondered, I suppose, about the Harry and Meghan element. That kind of passed off really with that incident. They had one public appearance. Mm. One of the days they released a photo of their daughter Lilibet after her first birthday, which they had a birthday party the weekend. She for. got her father's jeans. Yeah, the, she did, actually. <laughs> she did. did the she? photograph thing was interesting. I saw um, uh, some really good commentary on that as just an example as to why they want nothing to do with the general royal family and mm. the British media because I find it exceedingly weird, the coverage of a photograph of a one-year-old child. Um, it was everywhere, like yeah. it was everywhere. Um, so more power to them. Um, Platy Jubes was interesting. Had a good laugh. Did you read ah. anything into the Queen's Choice of Outfit, Richard? I know you're a big fan of divining some Fletcher messages. Green for that final moment on the balcony. Yeah. God, I'm, I'm emulating the Green <laughs> oh. myself here tonight. There you go, yeah. A, a nice tribute. <laughs>
to uh, Lizzie the Queen Royal from by Zara. Name, Royal by nature. I mean, Zara, <laughs> <laughs> okay, before we go, we can't leave this week go by without wishing the best of luck to all our Leaving Cert listeners. Um, we should. I'm going to say now, lads, I'm disappointed that you didn't bring us the Leaving Cert weather. Like, oh my God, today... The news at 12.30 today was like, for me, was an utter disgrace. <laughs> like, uh, I'm going to call it what it was. As someone who really, really suffered from the Leaving Cert weather in his Leaving Cert because I ran out of antihistamines in like the oh, hottest God. week of 2004, I, I'm kind of happy enough actually that the, this year's batch are going around with a slightly soggy overcast week. There's nothing worse than being in boarding school for your Leaving Cert and running out of antihistamines oh, no. on that fortnight of all fortnights. Dreadful result for all concerned. God, Leaving Cert memories. Tough run. Were you stressed or were you quite like, I feel like you would have been the kind of kid that like was quite smart naturally, were you? I, had a, I was stressed. I think you were I, No, I was, I was de- very stressed. I had a terrible time with my um, Irish uh, oral, or oral exam, I should say, sorry. I remember this exam period was rough enough. The weather was unbelievable for it. And then I think it was literally on the last day of the exam, just lashing rain and it was a terrible summer afterwards. So yeah. <laughs> Maybe it'll change. <laughs> yeah. So best of luck. Well, best of luck and look, look forward to it. Again, tell us your leaving third stories. If you want to get in touch, let us know how you're getting on. And we will, of course, be delighted to hear from you. That's it for the group chat for this week. Thank you, political correspondent Gavin Riley. Thank you, news correspondent Zarkin. Thank you, news correspondent Richard Chambers. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week. Thank you very much for joining Bye. us. Bye.